0: Have you ever stopped to think about what makes a nation a nation? Uh, there, are, there are four commonly identified characteristics uh, that are required for a nation to be a nation. Uh, number one would be uh, a territory, uh, a, uh, a set of uh, land that is marked off as belonging uh, to them. Uh, secondly, it requires a population, uh, people with a shared identity. Uh, Additionally, it requires sovereignty. uh, There is uh, some type of authority over both the land and the people. And then additionally, there must be a a government to exercise that uh, sovereignty, uh, to exercise that authority over land and people. Uh, And uh, uh, the website study.com has a a neat little video uh, that does a great job of explaining those characteristics. The great quote in one of the, that video says the nation is a system of organization in which people with a common identity live inside a country with firm borders and a single government. Uh, and the, the a nation that we identify with has a profound impact upon uh, who we are uh, really and, and who we become our, our whole identity. Right? We identify ourselves as uh, the nation that we are from. Now, most of us here probably identify as Americans, but there may be some uh, Canadians or South Africans or Brazilians. The, the language that we or the the nation that we come from also has a, an implication for probably the, the language that we uh, speak. I was talking with a, a pastor yesterday and his, his, one of his kids is a missionary and they've lived uh, in Canada in uh, the U.S. and in Mexico. So he's talking about each because they've lived in each of those areas, uh, his children have had language uh, instruction in each of those languages. Uh, so where you are born will really uh, be that the language that you are going to be uh, raised to speak. Additionally, the nation that we identify with is, is going to instruct the, the laws that we follow and the holidays that we celebrate. July 4th, Cinco de Mayo, Boxing Day, if you're Canadian. Uh, or this week, Thanksgiving. Now, what holds a nation together is its physical boundaries, uh, its government, and the fact that people believe that they are connected to each other. Which brings us uh, to the question of, uh, if if those are the things that hold a nation together, what is it that holds uh, the people of God together? Uh, The the kingdom of God, as it is spoken of in uh, Scripture, Uh, There will one day be a a literal ruling and reigning of Jesus on the earth. Uh, But right now, his kingdom is invisible uh, during this church age. Uh, And uh, the spiritual blessings of that future kingdom uh, are present in all of those who believe in Christ. uh, And we are citizens of that future kingdom. Uh, But during the the church age, uh, when the kingdom of God is invisible, uh, its citizens come from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Uh, so how do, we, how do we mark out and know who is a part of this kingdom and not a part of uh, the world? Uh, and how is this kingdom to be held together and identified? Uh, and uh, really what we see in Scripture is the church is uh, the local government for kingdom citizens. And baptism... Uh, and uh, the Lord's Supper serve uh, to mark out and to distinguish uh, who is a part of that kingdom uh, and not a part of the world. Baptism, as we're going to to look at, is uh, one of the signs of the new covenant, uh, as is uh, the participation in the Lord's Supper. Uh, And throughout Scripture, uh, God gives signs or reminders of his covenant promises. Right Uh, When God made a a covenant with Noah, what sign did he give to to remind Noah and all of creation that he would no longer uh, or never again Flood the entire earth he gave the the rainbow all right, when when uh god instituted a covenant with abraham uh, and said through you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed he gave him the, the covenant of circumcision uh, when god made a covenant with the nation of israel uh, he gave a, a sign of the covenant uh, and that was the sabbath day Uh, And every seventh day, uh, they were to take a day off and remember that they were in covenant relationship with God. Uh, And that covenant relationship had some requirements for them, and it had some promises from God. Uh, And so what we see is that these two ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are what Christ has ordained, uh, what he has commanded and given to the church to mark out uh, who is a part of the church and who is not. Uh, And uh, what I want to look at today is how these two ordinances uh, function and how they fit together. Uh, And this is all very important because uh, every single person who is following Christ should understand the significance. These are commands in Scripture. Why am I uh, commanded to be baptized? Uh, Why am I commanded to uh, remember Christ and partake of the cup and the bread? Uh, And then additionally, uh, this question comes uh, to me quite often from Christian parents uh, who are seeking to, to shepherd their children, to teach and instruct them, uh, the question comes up, when, when is my child ready for baptism? Uh, or when can my child uh, participate in uh, taking uh, the Lord's Supper? Uh, and so this is a very practical matter in addition to uh, a matter that every uh, single disciple needs to, to know and understand. And I'm, I'm doing this message this morning because, well, we have two baptisms later today. Uh, But also, as you may have noticed uh, on our communion Sundays, uh, when we announce uh, and ask you to to stand up and go and pick up the the elements from the the side tables, we we clarify and say, hey, we would love for you to participate if you have been baptized as an outward demonstration of your faith. And you may have wondered about that, of why do we uh, land there in that decision of, making, of saying who should participate and who should not participate uh, in the Lord's Supper. Well, this is in essence going to be an, an explanation uh, of that uh, this morning uh, as we look at these two ordinances. And, and as we look at these two uh, ordinances, uh, th- this is going to be uh, a theologically weighty conversation. Uh, Because as we look at these two ordinances, we look at the very heart of uh, the gospel, uh, of our identification with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, and we look very uh, intimately at what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's the remembrance of the Lord's table. Uh, But what should the relationship between these two ordinances be, and how do they function within the church? And before I I get into each of them, there's one thing I just wanted to I wanted to clarify and for everyone to, to keep in mind that neither one of these practices, uh, baptism nor participation in the bread and the cup, neither of those save you. Okay? They do not make us any uh, holier before God. They are not the means of salvation. Uh, and there are some uh, who teach that if you are baptized, then you are saved and that is the end of it. And you can uh, and that's the extent of your religious life. Uh, and among them, the Roman Catholic Church and, and many others that, that teach a baptismal regeneration. And that is not what we see in Scripture. And how do we know that these two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper? How do we know, how can we be certain that they do not save us? They are commanded of us, but they do not save us. How do we know that? Well, the Bible teaches that salvation does not come from any anything that we accomplish in and of ourselves. Uh, There are no good works uh, that we get to bring before God and say, look, God, I have earned your favor. We've been reading through the the book of Isaiah this month uh, in our Bible reading plan. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteous deeds that we try to bring before God are like filthy rags. Say, God, look at all of the great things that I've done. Uh, And it's a, a pile of polluted garments. Because our good deeds are never going to outweigh our bad deeds, uh, it, it's going to to be an impossible hamster wheel of effort. And so, what the Bible clearly teaches is that salvation is always and only by grace through faith. Uh, and this is very clear in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles and you want to open up to to Genesis chapter six. Genesis one, we saw God create the world in in six days. Genesis two, we saw. Uh, uh zeroing in on on day 6 and the relationship between Adam and Eve day or genesis 3 we saw the fall of man genesis 4 we saw that sin was passed to the next generation that Cain killed his brother Abel genesis 5 is about death coming into the world and being passed to all men right and he died and he died and he died is how every paragraph ends in chapter 5 of genesis but Genesis 6 is going to, uh, to give us the explanation for why uh, the global flood of judgment from God was necessary. Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, God emphasizes that the sinfulness of man had passed to everyone. But look at verse 8, how that paragraph ends is very different from how it begins. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the the emphasis is not that Noah was better than everybody else. The emphasis is that Noah found favor. The idea is that he found grace. He received from God what he did not deserve. If you turn over a few pages more, after the flood, God's going to make a a covenant uh, with Abraham. And uh, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, Uh, But Abraham is 75 years old and has no children. Uh, And after years of waiting on that promise, Abraham is kind of frustrated and and doubting a little bit. And he's saying, God, are you going to deliver on your promises? Uh, In Genesis uh, 15, what we see is uh, Abraham's doubt. And God ultimately says, look at the stars above, and I will make your offspring uh, as numerous as those stars. And after hearing that, look at Genesis 15, verse six. And he, speaking of Abraham, he believed the Lord and he, speaking of the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was not uh, justified or declared righteous before God based upon what he had done. He was declared righteous by God and before God on the basis simply of his faith. He believed the promises of God uh, and uh, God reconciled or recognized it as righteousness in him. If you turn over to Isaiah, the book that we're reading through uh, in uh, our, our reading plan this month. Isaiah 55. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, the exhortation is to come and buy, but he says to those who have no money. But wait a second, how is it I, I can come and buy if I have no money, that only if what I'm buying is free? And the emphasis is, you have no money. Recognize that. You have no money to bring to God and say, can I buy righteousness from you? But a little bit later in that same chapter, Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Salvation in the Old Testament was always based upon grace. Recognize your absolute neediness before God, that you have nothing to bring to Him to earn salvation. Abandon your self-improvement project and just ask Him to work in your heart and in your life. Cast yourself before Him in faith. That is the exhortation. And salvation by grace through faith is even more clear in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, verse 28 for we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law for we hold that one i'm sorry not no one i was like that sounded weird here we go for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law galatians 2:16 yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus So we have also so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In Ephesians two, eight and nine for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. If salvation is a, a, a result of my efforts, then what am I able to do? I'm able to brag. I'm able to to look down upon others. Uh, But uh, if salvation is purely by grace through faith, then I have to depend upon God and He gets all the glory. And how much glory do I get? An exact number. Zero. Right? We have to, to see and recognize that no one is saved through works in Scripture. Many people try. And many people fail at that. And ultimately, that that works-based salvation system, if if you're going to add works into the equation at any point in time, the the question in the back of your mind lingers, right? If, If my salvation is based upon what I do, the question always hanging out there is, have I done enough? Is God satisfied with me now? Well, but then... Uh, I just got angry in my heart, you know, last night. So then, what, what, where, where's my where's my standing? And that's the the uneasiness, uh, and there's no assurance within that. But God, in His infinite wisdom, and in His infinite glory, gives us assurance by removing all of the works away from us and putting it all upon Christ, which is what we're going to see. But additionally, the fact that salvation does not come as a result of, of baptism or the Lord's Supper. There are several examples in the New Testament where some are saved without being baptized. Like the thief on the cross. Uh, he, he didn't get down, get baptized, but Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then in Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician uh, really was a a false convert uh, who uh, made a profession of faith. He was even baptized by the apostles. And then after his baptism, uh, he offered the apostles money. He says, hey, can you give me the same power that you have to bestow the Holy Spirit? And Peter called him to repentance. And he just kind of said, well, Peter, you pray for me. I'm not going to do that. So Simon was baptized, but very clearly not a believer. But, but these two ordinances, they were, they were not given to save us. They were given to mark out who is a part of the church and who is not. To illustrate the gospel and make the invisible church visible. And so I want to look at each of these ordinances. And uh, first, beginning with baptism. Because baptism is uh, the beginning of identification with Christ and his church. Uh, and so if, if baptism does not save us, what does it do? Right, what role does it play in the Christian life? There's a, a wonderful definition by a pastor and theologian named Bobby James, and he says, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water, and a believer's act of publicly committing himself or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting the believer to the church and marking him off him or her off from the world. So we can say this that, that first and, and foremost, baptism is a is a public identification of a believer with christ and his church that the believer is communicating something and the church is communicating something the the believer is saying uh, i'm identifying uh, with christ in his life death and resurrection Uh, and the church is saying we recognize your profession of faith and again in this way baptism serves to mark off uh, those who have professed christ and are following him uh, from the world Uh, secondly baptism is a part of discipleship Uh, In the Great Commission, uh, just before Jesus uh, ascended uh, into heaven, uh, he gave his uh, disciples uh, a very clear command that they are to go uh, and make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So he issues this command, and then he's going to describe what that consists of. He says, Uh, and so baptism is the, the beginning of the Great Commission. It's, it's a part of uh, discipleship. And in the early church, uh, as soon as those who came to faith in Christ, they were baptized. This is, this is the pattern uh, in Acts 2.41, immediately after uh, Peter finished preaching in the, the temple in Jerusalem. It says 3,000 people believed and were baptized. It's a lot. We don't have that many baptisms today. That would take a long time. But 3,000. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian uh, eunuch, as as Philip is sharing the gospel with him, uh, and uh, the, the eunuch was reading in the book of Isaiah, he says, Philip, do you have any idea what this means? And Philip says, I'm glad that you asked. I can explain that. Uh, and Philip shared the gospel with him, and the, the eunuch said, Well, what's preventing me from being baptized right now? And Philip says, Well, really nothing. Well, let's, let's go. And he was there and baptized uh, in a body of water uh, right next to them. Now, and then Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer paul and silas are, are in prison for proclaiming the gospel uh and there's a an earthquake in the middle of the night uh and uh the the jailer thinks all of the the inmates escaped so he's ready to kill himself because that's what that meant if you were a jailer and somebody escapes you you were put to death and the philippian jailer rushes out and paul says no wait don't do that and the jailer says okay let's talk and Paul shares the gospel with him and the Philippian jailer and his entire household look to the Lord in faith. And they're all baptized that very night. Baptism is also a picture of salvation. Uh, it, it's a, uh, an illustration. It's a portrayal of a believer's union with Christ. Uh, submersion in the water uh, is an identification with Christ in his death. Uh, and uh, the bringing up out of the water is an identification with his Uh, resurrection and in his life Uh, and that union with christ uh, is what has taken place uh, through faith in him Uh, and the old self is gone and there's a new creation in christ Uh, an elevation from the waters of baptism then is a a picture of our resurrection uh, with christ that second birth Uh, if you if you turn over with me to romans chapter six very important passage in describing this reality The significance of baptism and what it portrays. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in uh, identification with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. But the waters of baptism also are a picture of spiritual cleansing, uh, a washing away, uh, and a, a demonstration of our new standing with God. That now when God looks at us, because we are united with Christ, uh, he no longer sees our sin, and we're no longer judged for our sin. It has been washed away because of what Christ has done and who he is. Uh, And this is what is seen in baptism. It's being portrayed. Titus 3, 5 uh, says that he saved us, speaking of God, not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but on the basis of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is an outward physical illustration of what has already taken place inside the heart of a believer. Uh, And so these three things are important to keep in mind. This is a public identification with Christ, a part of discipleship, uh, and it's a picture of salvation. Uh, and Christ, in his wisdom, has ordained it. This, is, this would be one of the first steps that every uh, believer would take in him. And uh, this is uh, something that has been really co-opted by the world around us, uh, something what the, the world would call rites of passage. Uh, and they exist across uh, different groups and, and different cultures. But uh, when I was in, in high school, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, gangs were a reality of life. Uh, and I had, had friends and, and teammates uh, who would uh, come to school and they would uh, be in a, a bad state because gangs had their own form of initiation. Uh, and really, if you were going to be a part of a gang, uh, how you were brought in uh, is that every member of that gang would, would surround you and they would come in and they would just pummel you. Uh, they would come in swinging, uh, and you, they would just hit you and hit you and hit you and hit you. And if you could endure that beating, you, you would be considered a, a part of the gang. Other groups have co-opted this I- idea of rites of passage. The modern day uh, LGBTQ movement, uh, really an informal way that they've done this, is that if you are going to uh, uh, to to come out uh, with this. You know, gay identity. Uh, you would you would post a video online, uh, explaining really your your testimony and what you were doing, and, and coming out and w- with whatever identity. The, the, these concept of rites of of passage and and really it's a it's a twisting of Christian truth. It's a it's a twisting of baptism, and these rites of passage announce to the world that these groups are. Uh, identifying or you're identifying with that particular group you're now a member of that gang or you're you're coming out with this identity if we understand what baptism is from scripture that baptism is these three things a a public identification a part of discipleship and a picture of salvation the next question would be who should be baptized and the, the short answer would be well only those who have believed Only those who have confessed faith in Christ, who have an understanding of who He is uh, and what He has done. Uh, And uh, true faith involves a willingness to identify with Jesus. Some of us may uh, be able to identify with this, but uh, being ashamed at times of our parents. Parents dropping you off at school, what do you ask them to do? Just drop me off around the corner and then drive down this street where none of my friends will We'll see you, all right? We, we've all had that feeling at one time or another where we have been uh, ashamed of our parents. And yet we cannot do that with Christ. And we, we can't claim to, to follow him and then say, Jesus, just hide yourself in my life. Don't come out. Don't let the world see you. We, we can't suppress Christ in our life. That's not what he calls us to do. Christ calls us to follow him as disciples and to not be ashamed of him. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, Jesus spoke to the the crowd. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Christ says, do not be ashamed of me. Don't, don't tuck him away in the back recesses of our life but what's a, what's amazing is what the, the the culture around us is pushing for right now they're trying to to force faith to only be defined uh, as an inner conviction right you keep that faith in you don't let it come out it can't influence how you think or or how you vote or how you converse with your friends neighbors and co-workers your faith is fine as long as it stays in your mind but when it becomes a reality outside of your mind, then there's problems and situations. And so the Christ and the world are at odds. Christ says, "Proclaim," and the world says, "Keep it in." But what's the takeaway from all of this? Now, baptism uh, is not an optional part of following Jesus. It's one of the first steps of discipleship. It's that identification of saying, "I'm with Jesus." And I'm going to be with him and follow him because he is the Lord and Savior of my life. It's that public declaration. And many of us are are quick to identify with a particular brand of, of clothing or a sports team that we are fans of. But we're not nearly as quick to identify ourselves with the one who has lived and died and risen again for us. And that should not be Uh, we must be ready to identify with Christ publicly, even if that makes life a little bit more difficult at times. And baptism uh, is that public declaration uh, and baptism is is a matter of faith. So I think on this, uh, parents understand if you come and ask me that question of when when is my son or daughter ready for baptism, I'm probably going to say, wait. Like, they, they should tell you when they're ready for baptism. Uh, and there may be a desire on their part at a young age, and that's good. Uh, but there is also some, some assessing that we that needs to take place. Do they understand who Jesus is? Do they understand their own sinfulness before a holy God? Uh, do they understand the, who Jesus is and what he has done on their behalf? Uh, so we don't want to, to rush baptism Uh, to try and give ourselves assurance of our children's salvation. That won't work out well. So baptism is the beginning of our public identification with Christ. And then secondly, communion is the ongoing identification with Christ and his church. Uh, And uh, we could define communion and the Lord's Supper in in this way, that same pastor and theologian that I quoted earlier, Bobby Jamison, says that the church's act of communing with Christ and each other uh, and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine uh, and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. Uh, and that, that is what is the intention of uh, the Lord's table. Uh, it's, a, it's a celebration of unity and identification corporately uh, with Jesus and a remembering of who he is and what he has done. We can kind of explain it or break it down in this way. First and foremost, uh, the Lord's Supper is a command. Uh, Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn there. On the last night with his disciples before he was betrayed, Jesus was partaking of the Passover meal with uh, the twelve. And verse 14 says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man, uh, as it has been determined, but uh, at, but woe to that man who by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it was who was going to, to do this. And so, Ultimately, it was Judas who who betrayed him. But Jesus gives these instructions to his disciples uh, and he tells them, uh, do this in remembrance of me. There's a very clear command there. uh, And then the command is really uh, the command to memorialize what what he has done uh, in those actions. Uh, It is a memorial uh, of what Jesus did uh, in his past sacrifice it 's a memorial and a remembering uh, of the fellowship that we have with him here and now and it 's a recognition and an anticipation that we are looking forward to christ 's return in the future. so it is a command it is a memorial, and then the lord's Supper is also a participation in christ uh, and and this is where there is a uh, to a certain extent a a reality of we are remembering who jesus is and what he has done but uh, there's also a spiritual significance uh to uh this uh these elements uh, john chapter six uh, jesus uh spoke about uh the blood and the and his own flesh in a, in a different way that was a stumbling block to the jews but he says basically if you don't partake of this you have no part with me uh, and uh it's a it's significant uh, in that and that was a major stumbling block but Ultimately, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participate. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Uh, and so the, the communion elements are a participation in Christ, not merely just a a memorial. But then additionally, uh, it is a participation also with Christ's church. Uh, It is an identification that we are a part of uh, this church body, and each one of us is united to Christ. Therefore, we are all united with and to one another. Uh, And uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the Apostle Paul condemned uh, the church uh, for not partaking uh, of the Lord's Supper uh, in, in a right way. Uh, the way that they were uh, practicing it was basically celebrating disunity, uh, and that's the the very contrary message of what the the, the meal is to part to communicate. Uh, it's a message of unity, and they were celebrating basically disunity uh, among them. And the Lord brought judgment upon them for that, which is which is sobering. That if we don't partake of uh, the Lord's table in the the right way. The Lord is willing to judge us on behalf of that. But again, if this is what communion is, then the significant question would come down to who should then participate in uh, the Lord's table. Now, throughout church history, there's been two predominant views, and one is known as the, the open view, where anybody who would profess faith in Christ uh, would be allowed to come and participate in the Lord's table uh, and then the other churches have taken a closed view where they would say only those who are members uh, of their church uh would be able to participate uh in the lord's table uh, and uh this is a uh there's been a lot of division throughout church history over this and, and Jonathan Edwards, who is uh, arguably one of the, the greatest theologians and maybe the greatest Puritan theologian uh, of the the church uh in uh, America. He was fired from his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, over this issue of who should participate uh, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, And uh, what it came down to is he had, uh, John Edwards was a co-pastor with his grandfather uh, of the church for for several years, and then his grandfather died, and his grandfather had allowed anybody who professed faith in Christ to to participate in the Lord's Table. And the the grandfather thought it would be a good way uh, to be evangelistic Uh, And uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, felt uh, differently. He had this conviction that, no, communion should only be celebrated and partaken of by those who are genuine believers in Christ. Uh, And uh, there began to be some conflict with key families in the church. uh, And it all came to a head when uh, Pastor Edwards didn't allow uh, one woman to partake of communion because she had never professed faith in Christ was openly saying she was not a believer and he said okay then you shouldn't partake of communion Uh, but edward's actions overturned what had been taught in the church and the church voted uh, overwhelmingly 90 percent uh to remove him uh from being the pastor there but what's interesting is they removed him but then said hey can you stay stay on and and continue to preach because we don't have another pastor uh and so he he continued to, to fill their pulpit for another 15 months uh, as, as they were sorting all of this through. And ultimately, Edwards was was fine uh, with stepping down. He felt so strongly about this. And, and over time, what has taken place is that view of his uh, grandfather that, hey, you can use the Lord's table to be evangelistic. That has seemed to be an error. Uh, and Jonathan Edwards viewed that No, it should be, it should consist of believers. Uh, that has been the predominant view uh, since then. And so while uh, Edwards believed in a in a closed table and only those who uh, are members of the church and his grandfather uh, held to an, an open table position, I would say that we have what's I would call a a close table. Uh, not, it's not closed, uh, but we would just say if those who... Uh, Participate with us should be uh, a baptized believer. Uh, those who have publicly identified with Christ in the way that I just uh, taught, that you're, you're saying, I'm with Jesus, I, I trust in Him, and no longer trust in myself. Uh, and Uh, we we want to to keep it there because we know that there are people outside of our church who know Christ and have a relationship with Him. Uh, And so if we only say those who uh, are members of this church, that means anybody who would be a a visitor among us and a genuine believer would not be able to participate. And we don't uh, feel like that is uh, the appropriate uh, conclusion. Uh, And this is also really, really helpful, again, for parents asking, when should my child partake of the Lord's Supper? Uh, And the really easy answer is, after they've been baptized, uh, and after they've publicly said I'm I'm following Jesus, and and they've uh, understood uh, their own testimony of faith, uh, and have given that testimony, and have identified with Christ, that's when they should partake of uh, the Lord's table uh, with the church, and that's when they should identify with the church, and the church should identify with them. Uh, and so ultimately, that's how baptism and communion are intended to to fit together uh, and mark out who is a part of the church and and who is not baptism is that uh, the the doorway into the the family home so to speak uh, and then communion is the family meal Uh, and so we need to to understand how those relate to one another Uh, and again thinking back to what i said earlier about what holds a nation together right physical boundaries government and the fact that the people are connected to each other uh, and Again, Christ, in his wisdom, has ordained that that baptism and the Lord's Supper would be how we identify uh, and connect with one another. We are acknowledging uh, that Christ is our Lord and our Savior, both at uh, baptism and as we participate in uh, the table together. We are remembering who Jesus is uh, and what He has done, and we are looking forward to His return uh, and our participation with him uh, in glory uh, and so uh, again, this is this is wonderful to to be refreshed. Uh, and to remember these truths. Uh, and more often, uh, we need to remember already what we have been taught uh, than to learn new things because we tend to forget. Uh, so keeping these things in mind uh, for our, our own hearts and as we uh, get ready in just a few minutes uh, to uh, witness the baptisms, as we get ready in, in two weeks uh, and prepare our hearts to remember the Lord's uh, table, I would, I would challenge and encourage you to keep these truths in mind. Uh, remember uh, that we have died to sin. We have died to sin because Christ died on our behalf. And our faith has united us with him, and we have been raised to newness of life. That's why we have hope uh, in battling against sin. That's why we have assurance that we will one day uh, be made new. There's so much rich theology that is put on display in both of these ordinances and we need to keep those in mind and and, uh, we need to teach them well to ourselves and to our children uh, and to understand very clearly that they are given to mark out uh, the church and they're given to us by God as his ordinances and look forward to uh, to celebrating those uh, in just a few minutes. But let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and then we'll uh, be dismissed for a brief break.